2: welcome to the podcast. This is Molly. And I'm Kristen. Kristen, we've said this before. We say it to ourselves all the time. We have the best listeners in the world. Oh my gosh, I know. From the emails you write us to the funny and awesome things you guys post on Facebook. And even the mean emails. <laughs> <laughs> well, those are my least favorite. But by and large, we have awesome listeners who help us put together great podcasts. And a while back on Facebook, I put out the call, what are some ideas people have for the For the podcast, because Mm -hmm. it saves us some work, honestly. That's true. And, uh, our listener Karen suggested female playwrights and disparities between men and women in the theater world. The theater? And it became all the more pressing to do this podcast that very same week when there was a shakeup. I mean, these people are dramatic, but even for dramatic people, this was a, this was a world changer.
1: I think that you're
3: referring to the Wasserstein Prize kerfuffle. Yes, the title of my
2: next play. <laughs> that would be a good play, I think, because yeah, you read you read some blogs, uh, some theater blogs about this, and people are up in arms, and and even not knowing that much about theater in New York City, I think this is pretty pretty disturbing. The Theater Development Fund has awarded the Wasserstein Prize to female playwrights who are under the age of 32, uh, who have not yet received national attention for their work, and it gives them twenty five thousand dollars to ease financial pressure so that they can focus on their work in the hopes of producing a show that will receive that national attention. Not a bad prize. That's an excellent prize. Nothing to sneeze at. And this year, after giving out this award for three years, this year they said, you know what? We have all these nominations, but several dozen nominations, but no one's, no one's good enough. Yeah. We're just going to take a bye this year. They are
3: not awarding a prize to any of it. And of 19 nominees, we were reading about this and someone likened it to the Oscars. Every year there is a best picture. Even if the selections are not that stellar, mm-hmm. someone always takes home an Oscar.
2: Right. And you know, some people were like, well, they don't always give a Pulitzer if there's not an artistic work that deserves a Pulitzer. But it's hard to think of any prize that's offered annually. Other than that, that's ever been revoked. And I'm sure you guys out there can think of them. But the fact that this one was revoked and it's so significant for a young writer, specifically a female writer, mm-hmm. that I, I really thought it deserved our attention. And this decision got so much attention that just a week later, the group said, oh, you know what? We'll, we'll consider we'll consider them again. We'll do it. We'll, we'll take a we'll take a Monty, We'll do a do over. Well, we'll consider giving it out, but we're going to, you know, ask the nominees for more plays. We're going to, you know, maybe maybe change some criteria. And they were kind of shadowy about it, but it it was kind of interesting that uh, the petitioning and the outcry it caused in the theater world is causing these people to reconsider their decision to not give the prize, but also perhaps reconsider the state of the female playwright in today's world.
3: And I think one of the the main reasons why people were so within the theater community were so enraged over uh, the possibility that the Wasserstein Prize would not be given out is because there has been this struggle for years now and this uh, conversation going on about why female playwrights are not getting more attention. We've talked about the struggle of female directors female chefs, certain industries that are typically dominated by men
2: and female playwrights have it really pretty bad. Well, and also when you consider that, that some of these theater companies have the mission of bringing a really diverse group of voices to the stage. And some of these theaters are publicly funded. And uh, so it, it becomes this issue of why aren't they bringing women voices to the stage if they have this mission to, you know, show a, a, bri- a broad swath of humanity.
3: Right. And to underscore just what this means to some of the people in, in the theater community, and especially in New York, who were completely outraged by this, the playwright Michael Liu, who penned Roanoke, wrote a letter to protest Uh, the the decision to not give out the Wasserstein Prize, and he said, This decision can only be interpreted as a blanket indictment on the quality of female emerging writers and their work, and it is insulting not only to the finalists, but also to the many theater professionals who nominated these writers and deemed their plays prize-worthy. This decision perpetuates the pattern of gender bias outlined in Julia Jordan and Emily Glassberg Sands' study on women in the theater, which we'll get to in a minute, and the message it sends to the theater community generally that there aren't any young female playwrights worth investigating. That's a lot,
2: Mr. Liu. And I think that his, uh, that prominent letter may be why there's a do-over. Yeah,
3: and so. it, because it really does kind of sum up this conversation that, like we said, has been going on now for a while and the struggle of these young playwrights to try to figure out why it is harder for female playwrights, why their plays are not, uh, being produced and, uh, what, what kind of factors are going into this? Where this gender bias,
2: or at least alleged gender bias is coming from? Well, you mentioned the name Julia Jordan, Kristen. Let's, so let's start with, uh, her work. She is a playwright herself. And a few years ago, she started organizing these town halls between female playwrights and prominent theater professionals, the, the artistic directors who make that decision to put on a play. Uh, people who might be able to get more female-written plays produced. And some of the numbers she threw out at one of her town hall was that 30 years ago, this is in 2008, 7% of the plays on national nonprofit stages were written by women, and that currently that number is around 17%. So she's like, if this continues, we will finally be at 50% female-written plays on the stage in 100 years. Oh, wow. So then the question becomes... Are women not writing plays? Are women not writing good plays? And if they are, are we not putting them on? And she says, by every, uh, measure that you can take into account to figure out if women are pursuing playwriting, it appears they are. They're getting graduate degrees. They're taking fellowships. They'll win awards, but they can't get those plays on the stage. So it's, it's not a level of, she says, lack of, lack of quantity. Yeah, and the interesting thing
3: too is that at, um, theater festivals, around the United States, out, particularly outside of New York. Uh, so these festivals, including um, those at Humana in Louisville and the Eugene O'Neill Theater Center in Waterford, Connecticut, are dominated by women. So it's not that women are completely inactive within the theater community. It's not like they aren't producing works. But there does seem to be, especially when we're talking about New York, when we're talking about off-Broadway and especially on Broadway, Um I think Julia Julia Jordan tossed out, the statistic that m- their male counterparts in the 2008-2009 season were produced at 14 of the largest off-way off-broadway institutions at four times the rate that women were being produced.
2: So then the question becomes if women produce in these plays they're doing fine in these little festivals, if they're doing fine outside of New York City, are they just not trying hard enough in New York? And she goes to the agents, the agents say no, women pr- women submit their work just as much. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the question becomes, well, maybe it's the ticket buyers. Maybe they don't want to see plays written by women. But women make up the bulk, according to research of uh, Broadway and off-Broadway ticket purchasers. And the top two most successful plays of each of the past 10 years, according to Julia Jordan, there were 24 plays. 14 had female protagonists and 7 had male protagonists, and the rest were ensemble works. So it's not that... There's some stereotype that female playwrights write female characters that, you know, men don't want to watch. They are yeah. already successful plays that have female protagonists. Um, so it's, it's not that they're writing work that people don't want to see. Mm-hmm. It's not that they're not submitting their work. And it's not that they're, you know, just not writing plays at the same level of men. Uh, they're just talking on the stage. So what is that disconnect? Well, there's
3: also within the, um, sort of on the, on, on an internal level, there's an idea that maybe since a lot of theater directors are male, they just don't jive with, um, females' works. And, um, there was, uh, one playwright who said that women's plays often did not resolve as conclusively as those by men and they don't follow the more standard model of dramas and directors aren't as comfortable. I guess it sounds like actually women playwrights are thinking a little bit more outside the box and maybe um the male directors aren't comfortable going into those spaces. But again, it's just hypothesizing.
2: And I think there has been this tendency, Kristen, to blame the male directors and the male artistic directors as this reason why women aren't getting produced. And that completely shifted in 2009 with this really groundbreaking work. By Emily Glassberg Sands, who at the time was just an undergraduate, but a very impressive undergraduate, as the New York Times noted. Uh, she went to Princeton and she was heading for graduate work at Harvard. In just her undergraduate career, she had gotten uh the co-author of Free Economics, Stephen D. Levitt, uh, collaborating with her. She had Cecilia Rouse, a member of the White House Council of Economics, working with her. Uh, you know, she had, she had the big wigs working with her and she decided to look at this issue of discrimination against female playwrights. And, uh, and she found that there may be an, a surprising culprit in the, and the reason that women aren't getting produced.
3: So what Glassberg Sands did was uh, she she started out by reviewing information on twenty thousand playwrights who were in the dramatist guild and dooley.com, which is an online database of playwrights. And while she did find that there were twice as many male playwrights as female ones, and the the men tended to write more. That wasn't the most interesting thing that she figured out because what she did next was she wanted to find out, okay, well, even if women are are not producing as many plays with the ones that get into the hands of artistic directors and literary managers, are they just being discriminated against? And do people really not want to produce women's plays? So what she did was she took some plays that had already
2: been written, but just hadn't been produced, right? Mm -hmm. By by pretty acclaimed playwrights. Mm -hmm. So we're not dealing with, you know... What the Wasserstein Prize Kerfuffle might end up being. Right. By Molly and Kristen. Yeah. I mean, these were, we're,
3: these are the big wigs. I mean, let's not lie, Molly. I mean, we are headed for the Tony's, but it's just going to take a little while. I mean, it's
2: going to, I mean, we had to battle all this discrimination. Exactly.
3: (laughs) Anyway. So Sands took, took these plays. And change the author names uh, to something, you know, some pretty generic names uh, saying Joe Smith versus Jane Smith. So she gave these plays to the artistic directors and literary managers and wanted to see if there was a difference in how they responded to the same play from
2: Joe versus Jane. And those plays were rated differently. Yes, they were. But only by women. Yes. So when it landed in the hand of a female artistic director... She had the tendency to rate a female written play lower than a male written play. And Sands had included this list of questions like, do you think this work can be staged? Like, would your company stage this blah, blah, blah. And it was the female artistic directors who rated these female plays. They had the names of the playwrights in front of them that said when they had, you know, Joe Smith versus Jane Smith, Joe Smith always ranked higher. The male artistic directors always rated the men and the women who had written plays or those, those scripts in front of them exactly the same. Right. So this was groundbreaking. You know, like, like we said for, for many years, people were like, Oh, everything's so male dominated. These artistic directors are, are, you know, they see a female name and they think hormones and they throw it away, <laughs> but it's actually the female artistic directors. And, you know, there was a lot of discussion as to why this would happen. And I think that. Uh, you see this in a lot of professions that because women sort of expect the females to have a harder, a harder time. Right, succeeding, just like they did, yeah. Then they, you know, it's almost like you have to produce the best play ever for a female, uh, artistic director to consider you because she knows you've got this long hard road that your name might not May not open doors and instead of, you know, helping, helping each other out, uh, you know, they're saying, uh, oh, it's not as good as this guy's when in fact that guy was actually a, a female playwright.
3: And clearly we're not saying that these artistic directors need to give female playwrights an unnecessary hand up. I mean, uh, the, the work should stand for itself, but. When it comes to the box office, these artistic directors and managers might be shooting themselves in the foot a little bit because at the end of the day, if people don't come to your play, if they're not buying tickets, it's not going to go anywhere. You know, no one's, it's just going to
2: die. That's right. right. So, so Sands was like, are these companies losing out on money by not producing the female written plays? And the answer was yes. Plays and musicals by women sold 16% more tickets a week. And were 18 percent more profitable overall and shows that were written by women that were profitable were cut shorter than less profitable plays that were written by men. And uh, she compared this to uh, the 1960s and 70s when they did a lot of work on discrimination in baseball. And there are studies from that time that showed that black baseball players had to just have astronomically higher and better batting averages and statistics than the white players just to get to play. Mm -hmm. But when they played, they were so much better. And it's the same thing with female playwrights, according to this research, that when the female playwrights get the chance to put on their work, you can have magic.
3: And I think we should note, too, that those statistics come from her examination of 329 new plays and musicals produced on Broadway in the past 10 years. So clearly, the the numbers don't lie. Mm -hmm. She's doing some pretty thorough research. So after finding that out there's been and this came out what around 2008 this really sparked yeah. the big uh, the big conversation so it left a lot of these female playwrights and these women in the theater community asking why and what what to do
2: and then only to have a year later to have this Wasserstein Prize kerfuffle mm-hmm. when we've just learned that if it's female artistic directors who are not giving these female playwrights a chance it's it's very frustrating to see this this prize being revoked because it's the same thing it's like dangling the carrot like, oh, female playwrights, be artists, explore the world, but don't get rewarded. For
3: it. So one suggestion that Julia Jordan, who we referenced earlier, had for addressing this gender bias in the theater community is to perhaps take a cue from orchestras. And this was pretty interesting, I thought. She was saying that in the 1970s and 80s, in response to a discrimination suit of gender bias in orchestras, I guess, depending on um, deci- on deciding who plays what and who gets a chair and who doesn't, uh, most major U.S. orchestras began auditioning new members blind. Screens would be used to hide the identity of the musician, and sometimes they even went so far as to roll out carpets to muffle the click of women's heels that would give away their gender. And as a result, Many orchestras have achieved parity, largely due to the screens, and maintain it by continuing to use blind
2: auditions today. So, and that idea, you know, is held up in Sands' research that if you've got two plays, one of them has a male name, one of them has a female name, the male name does better with some artistic directors then maybe having no names on on those plays could help achieve more balance. Some other initiatives we've seen. Uh, one example is 50/50 in 2020. Which is a grassroots movement, uh, that is empowering women and men to create positive change through a variety of independent initiatives. And some of these initiatives just include simple things like gathering people together and reading a bunch of work by women so mm-hmm. that people start, you know, thinking about what is a work by a woman and hey, that was pretty good. Maybe we should listen to more. So that's, that's one of them. And also, in response to
3: the lackluster representation of women in the Tony Award nominations, a group of people in the theater community in New York got together and organized, this year, the first annual Lillian Hellman Awards for Outstanding Achievements by Women in the Theater.
2: They just called them the Lilies. The Lilies. I'd rather win a Lillian and Tony. <laughs> Although, then you couldn't get an EGOT. Exactly. Maybe the EGOL. Yeah, an EGOL. An Eagle. Yeah. Just for you 30 Rock fans out there who are trying to get your egots.
3: Right. So these women are, you know, they're, they're making some moves. They're
2: getting headlines, but who knows? I mean, <laughs> one, one comment we saw in these articles is that the story's been written, you know, every decade mm-hmm. that female playwrights are trying to get more representation. So hopefully, uh, the Wasserstein Prize kerfuffle soon coming to theaters near you. we'll we'll maybe keep this in the conversation a little bit more.
3: And I wonder if by the time this podcast comes out, if the Wasserstein will have been awarded.
2: We will definitely make a note of it on the blog and Facebook and Twitter and all our ways of keeping up with you guys. Indeed. So, theater buffs out there, let us know what you think. Send us an email, momstuff at
3: howstuffworks.com. And in the meantime, I've got a little email here that we can read, Molly. sounds wonderful. This is in response to an older podcast that we did on mail order brides. And this is from Michael. And Michael says, I have to take exception with your podcast concerning mail order brides. I understand that anecdotal stories may not be indicative of the world at large, but the personal experience of my friends and I with marrying a foreign bride run counter to many of the points you make in your podcast. So here is my comment. My friends and I fall into the category of the nice guy. We believe in being respectful and caring towards the women we love. As a whole, we are hardworking men with established careers. Our IQs are above average, and we have good senses of humor. We're tech savvy, which makes makes us nerds. We're average or less in appearance. We are shorter than average. Rather than sitting on the couch watching football, we go out and engage in life. We snow ski, motorcycle, and travel. We aren't afraid of adventure. We don't live with our moms and don't play Star Wars models. Play with Star Wars models. We're grown men who lack something in our lives, and that is love. While it seems superficial for a man to use a foreign bride agency, it's driven by the fact that our choices have become limited here in the U.S. Just go to any of the dating websites and see how many women want to date men who are tall. Look at the shopping list of criteria posted on their profiles. We have tried dating and are tired of the modern U.S. game. Most first dates, especially from dating websites, are more like job interviews rather than having an enjoyable evening. I personally refuse to do Any more safe dates at Starbucks where I'm sized up in the first 30 minutes as to my suitability as a partner or even as a man. Combine this experience with women who seek the dark triad and consider guys like me only friend material. In fact, my friends and I are baffled by the observation that so many women are so willing to date complete jerks. Unlike the 1800s, the world is a much smaller place. In a few hours, we can be on the other side of the world. We can, we have phone and internet connectivity. It's easy to remain connected and to talk as never before. Just turn on the webcam. If an agency is helping people connect, what's the problem? Yes, bringing a foreign bride to the US is expensive. It can cost Ten to $20,000 to do this but rather than thinking we are quote buying a wife, perhaps consider that we have the natural desire to love and be loved. In that search for love we are willing to search the globe. How many love songs tell of a man's willingness to climb the highest mountain and swim the deepest sea for the woman of our dreams? In this instance we are willing to climb over a mountain of paperwork and navigate the bureaucratic seas in the hope of finding love. Be aware that we are cautious when we think about meeting a foreign woman. We are aware of the fact that we may be viewed as a ticket to a Green card or a path out of a difficult economic situation. And the men I've met who marry a Russian bride take great pains to avoid being used. There is a risk on both sides, but it is also great reward. Rather than being condescending about our choice, please consider nice guys too, who deserve to be loved. Michael, I gotta say that's, uh, that's a pretty great email. Quite a story, yes, and food for thought. So, if you would like to send us meals of food for thought in form of email email us at MomStuff at HowStuffWorks.com or head on over to our Facebook page and give us a like, if you will, or check us out on Twitter at momstuffpodcasts, and then finally you can head over to our blog Stuff Mom Never Told You at HowStuffWorks.com
0: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com To learn more about the podcast, click on the podcast icon in the upper right corner of our homepage. To start planning your trip,
1: visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee. Sounds perfect.
0: This episode is brought to you by Pedigree. If you've been looking for love at first sight, it is closer than you think. It can be found at your local shelter. So this June 7th to 9th, join the Pedigree Adoption Drive